Life Audio. Welcome to the Real Refreshment Podcast. Join us as we dive into motherhood at the foot of the throne with your host, Rachel Carmen. If you are tired, overwhelmed, and feeling alone, this is the place for you. A place for real moms with real stories, seeking real refreshment found only in the living God. Take a minute to visit rachelcarmen.com and join the community of Real Refreshment listeners who are taking the dare to be in the Word as a top priority in the journey of motherhood. All right, let's kick off this latest episode of the Real Refreshment Podcast. Here's your host, Rachel Carmen. Hello, everyone. We are going to wrap up our two-part series today and finish strong. So last time we talked about two instances in which we need to focus on finishing strong. And today we're going to tackle the third after a short review. I'll be right back. In a recent survey, parents reported that 52% of homeschooled children need learning accommodations. These parents need practical advice, encouragement, and hope to fuel their homeschooling efforts. The Empowering Homeschool Conversations podcast is where parents gain wisdom on how to teach unique learners successfully at home, like Laura, who recently told us, I needed this episode. I don't need a fancy curriculum or need to be a special ed teacher to teach my son. You have given me hope. To listen now, go to Life Audio or search Empowering Homeschool Conversations on your favorite podcast app. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Okay, so last time I introduced this whole idea of finishing strong, and I suggested that there were three instances in which I could imagine, though maybe not an exhaustive list, three instances in which I think it's important for us to take some time to consider what would it look like to finish strong. And so the first one I talked about was, When we have dared to take the time to make resolutions or plans or chart our course, set objectives, goals, I think it's important for us to remember that those are really only as good as we review them. So if we just tick off some resolutions January 1st of each year and never dare to go back and see how we're doing on that, then it probably wasn't necessarily worth our time to do that because we're not daring to stay on course. One of the things, and I'm not going to do this whole analogy justice, but one of the things that I have read about and learned about in navigation, whether it's a plane or a boat, you need a captain who is constantly realigning the ship itself or the airplane itself with the course we're supposed to be on. Because drift is normative. And so if we're not constantly readjusting and realigning with where we actually want to be or where we want to be going, then we're probably not going to get there. So the first instance in which we need to ever be mindful of what it looks like to finish strong is with those New Year's resolutions. The second instance that we went into a little bit more in depth last time were those instances in which there's a natural or necessary ending. And we talked about jobs coming to an end, different seasons in our life, 
school coming to an end, graduation. We talked about even anticipating life coming to an end. We talked about three men. We talked about Moses and Joshua and Paul as they faced their end. How did they do that well? Because it was necessary that they would die. But how did they do that in a way that honored God? And we studied those three men last time, and I gave you some verses that you could go back and study further. Today, I want to take our time today to talk about those instances in which we are absolutely broadsided. So this isn't natural. It's not something that we anticipated. It's not something that we would have planned for or resolved, right? This is when you end up feeling like your plans and your resolutions have been totally hijacked or blown sky high. You've been knocked off course. You didn't volunteer to get off course. You didn't veer off course. You didn't drift off course. You were knocked off course, right? You're left scratching your head. Your head is spinning. You are disoriented. You're confused. Those times in your life where you're asking questions like, how did I get here? And how do I get away from here? Because I don't want to be here. That's the instance that I still would maintain. We still need to consider, okay, here's where we are, whether or not we wanted to be here and whether or not we understand how we got here. And even as much as we want to know the answers to all of those questions, how do we finish this strong, this trial, this tribulation, this testing? How do we do this well? Because I think that's an excellent question. I don't believe that anything that comes in our path, our lives, is surprising to God. And I believe in a sovereign God. I believe he ordains everything that touches us. And if, in fact, that is true, which I believe it is true, then we need to take seriously those situations, those instances in which we feel totally discombobulated with life and circumstances. And we need to dare to consider, okay, how do we do this? How do we finish this well? How do we do this? How do we face this? You know, in those kind of instances, I don't know about you, but um, I've had a few of those in my lifetime and even more recently. And I have some things that I want in those situations, right? So I'm old enough now that not my first rodeo, I've been knocked off course before. I feel like my plans and my life and my hopes and my dreams have been hijacked before. And yet, when it happens again, right, I still have things that I want. I mean, I want a different reality. I want to wake up in a different reality. I'm not going to give details about the current broadsiding, but I can give examples in the past, like, for instance, when we walked through right at two years of unemployment, I remember waking up with a start, kind of something like (gasps) in the morning, right? Going, oh, rats, yeah, we're still unemployed. You know, just feeling like, oh, my goodness, I hoped to wake up today, right, in a different reality. I, I, I want to escape when these things happen, when you, you feel like this. I, I want to run away. I want answers. I want to know whose idea this was. How did I get here? Why? Why am I here? And how do I, what do I do with here, right? What do I do? I also want a guarantee. I think 
way too often when we witness someone else get broadsided or knocked off course, we will say things, I think often thoughtlessly, that are not helpful in the moment. Things like, it's going to be better, right? Things are going to be better. This is awful now, but it's going to be better. You know, I don't think we can hand out that guarantee. I think things are better ultimately when we are reunited with Christ in heaven. But life here is hard. And tough things happen, and it's not always easy. And I think to throw away, and I think to throw around flippantly that, yeah, it's going to be better. It's not, this is just a little bit. This is just a short thing. This is just whatever. This is just a, a holding pattern. I, I think that we, we need to be cautious in giving anybody a guarantee. I, Tell you something else I want when I've been broadsided or I find myself in a situation or a circumstance that I don't like and I would like not to be in. I want a timeline. I would really like to know when it's going to be over, (laughs) you know, and I want to know so I can mark time. I, I don't like the idea of frustrating or aggravating or negative circumstances or situations being a marathon. I'm all about the sprint. You know, let's let's get this over with. And I I don't want an explanation, you know, what is this going to benefit? How is this going? I want the plan, you know, laid out in front of me. But get this, I don't get any of that, right? Not delineated. I, I have all of those in two phrases, but I don't have the specifics that my flesh longs for. See, God assures me throughout scripture, and he assures you, all of those who love him, he assures us that everything is for his glory, everything. And you can march through scripture and you can read about character after character after character, real story after real story of people in life circumstances that are pretty lousy. And yet, time after time after time after time, God is faithful. And God is glorified through the way that he intervenes and the way he moves and the way he acts on behalf of those he loves. So we know from scripture that whatever circumstance you and I face, it is for the glory of God. And we know, secondly, that it is for our good, right? But neither one of those can feel awesome when you're feeling broadsided when you feel like your world's been imploded, when you feel like you're triaging, right, mom? Often you and I are the ones that feel like we're triaging all the other people impacted by whatever happened, right? And it doesn't always feel like this is going to turn out for any kind of good. But we know that God does work it all out for good. That doesn't mean it's easy, and it doesn't mean it's comfortable, and it doesn't mean it's pleasant, and it doesn't mean it's fun, but it does mean it all has a purpose, and we can rest in that. So I want to suggest to you today, I want to look kind of in depth, not as far as I would love to go, but I want to talk about two men where I think we see this happen in their lives. One, I would suggest in the extreme, and the second more like maybe what you and I have experienced from time to time. So I'm going to not surprisingly suggest to you the story of Job, right? So Job is, it says in the book of Job that he was found by God. Let me read it exactly from the NASB. It says in Job 1, 
1, that Job was a man blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. That's a pretty great resume. So this is how Job is described in the Word of God. So this guy's good, and we meet him making sacrifices for his kids. This is a good guy, right? And and yet, if if you read the narrative, and again, I would encourage you to read the entire book of Job. It's a remarkable recounting of what this man walked through. And again, all of the stories of real people that are included in the biblical text are here for our encouragement. They're not included randomly. They're not included for any other reason. They're not included for any other reason but to bring glory to God and to encourage us in our hearts, minds, and souls because God knew that we would need the encouragement from their lives so that we could walk worthy as we seek to honor and pursue God. So in this instance of Job, this righteous man, God calls Satan's attention to Job's righteousness. God's like, yeah, have you ever considered Job? I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, he is blameless. He's upright. And Satan is like, well, of course he is. He's blessed. He's prosperous. He has sons and he has daughters. He has a great reputation. He has a wife. Why would he not be? In other words, he's like, his life, he's kind of got a maid. Of course he's upright and righteous and blameless. Of course he is. Of course he makes sacrifices to you on behalf of his children. Everything's going pretty good for Job. And the Lord gives permission to Satan to take things away from Job. Now, you have to notice in this instance that as faithful as we see God be to Job throughout the entire narrative of the book, you've got to see that God had faith in who Job was. He knew that Job's faithfulness, that Job's blamelessness, that Job's uprightness was not based on his circumstances or his possessions. Wow. God knew that because God knew Job's heart. And so God knew that, okay, take it away because that's not what Job bases any of that on. And so we read, we're just in chapter one, by the way, you don't have to get over to chapter 12 for this narrative to really pick up in action. Still in chapter one, we're still in chapter one, a succession of servants come and report to Job the following list of circumstances. One comes and says, the oxen are all gone. Second one comes and says, oh yeah, the sheep are all gone. Third, oh yeah, the camels are all gone. And if that weren't enough, the fourth servant comes and says, um, your children are all gone. Yeah. None of us should ever whine or complain about a bad day ever again. This was the consummate Bad day, bad moment. This man who had all of these blessings, all of these possessions, 10 children who were celebrating in one of their homes, right? It says a whirlwind came and the house collapsed and they were all killed. 
And all of this news is piled on top of each other. And there's this moment in Holy Writ when this, the dust hasn't even settled, right? And what do we get from Job in that moment? Picking up now in verse 20, it says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshiped. How did Job respond to the worst day ever in history? Arguably the worst day ever. How did Job respond? He fell to the ground and he worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all of this, it says in verse 22, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Wow. So on this, he's gotten broadsided. His plans have gotten hijacked. He's confused. His head is spinning. He's standing over 10 graves, right? All of his kids have been killed. And God calls attention to Job a second time to Satan. Satan's like, well, you won't let me touch him. Okay, so I can take everything away from him, including his kids, and he still worships you. This is Satan talking. And God goes, okay, fine. Touch him. Just don't take his life. So for the second time, God has confidence in Job. And Job proves faithful. We pick it up now in chapter 2. It says then, verse 7, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took broken pottery to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Whoa. So if it wasn't enough that he's lost his reputation and all of his possessions, the broken pottery, to me, I'm wondering, did how did the broken pottery come to be in the ash heap? What burned down? What What is all of this surrounding? I mean, this is a pretty pathetic reduction of a human We have him, we meet him, he's celebrating, he's worshiping God, he's sacrificing on behalf of his children, and this is a man reduced to an ash heap, scraping his boils with broken pottery. Here we see his wife, and I'm just going to say, without chasing this too far, here's a woman that I think gets a bad rap. Here's a woman who's lost everything, right, and makes a desperate comment She says, curse God and die. This is a woman broken, a woman despairing, a woman who just does not know how to respond to everything that is lost and everything that is gone. Her heart is aching. Her heart is aching. And listen how Job responds to his wife. She says in verse 9, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? In all of this, this is the second time this is noted. Before in chapter 1, verse 22, and now again in chapter 2, verse 10, it says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
He didn't say anything against God. We see here a man who's very measured in his response. He's not rash. He's not rash. He's very measured. Then we get his three friends that come, right? They came, one from each, their own place, it says. Skipping down, though, I want to pick up in verse 12. It says they, end of 11, it says they had come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And then in verse 12, it says, when they lifted up their eyes at a distance, they did not recognize him. See, Job was so changed and so broken and so reduced, they didn't recognize him. And they'd been friends. It says they raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore their robe, and they threw ashes over their head. And this, is, this was wisdom here in verse 13, it says. And they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. That is a beautiful picture of friends truly empathizing with the brokenness of Job. It didn't stay silent, however, and if you read the rest of the narrative, you'll pick that up. But I just want to say that there's a second time in the book of Job, and we don't have time to go all into it, but if you go over to chapter 19, verse 25, Job again says, As for me, so we're further into the narrative, still got boils, still suffering, no resurrection of the ten children, no return of the oxen or the camel or the sheep, right? He's still in this time of tribulation, right? He's surrounded by his friends. Now he's got accusation coming at him. And I want to call your attention to 1925 because here's where we see what is Job holding on to in the midst of this? He doesn't have any answers. You and I have the benefit of the entire book of Job. We can skip to the last chapter and pick up and see how it ends, right? He didn't have that. You and I often don't have that in our circumstance. We can find ourselves in circumstances and we're like, man, this is, this is it. I don't, see, I don't see a way out of this. I'm in a cave. I do not see a source of light. I'm in a hole. I do not see a ladder to dig out. I am in a place I do not recognize. I don't know how I got here, and I do not know how to get out. That's Job, I would suggest to you. And he says here in 1925, as for me, this is what I know. This is what I know. In those moments when it's so tempting to think we don't know anything, when everything is spinning, when our, our head, we just can't even calm our thoughts to rest or sleep or anything. This is what Job says. Here's a lesson for us. I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will at last take his stand on the earth. I mean, I can just see Job going, I don't know where the camels went. I don't know where the sheep went. I don't know where the oxen went. I don't know that I get them back. I don't know what happened to my children. I don't know why this happened. And these boys, I don't know how to get rid of the boils. I don't know. And I'm innocent of all of your accusation, but this I know. This I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that he will stand again on the earth. Listen to me. You and I have things to hold on to when everything else feels like it's falling. And it's the same thing 
that Job shows us that he's holding on to right here. I know, I know, I don't know a lot of things, but I know this. I know that my Redeemer lives. I want to ask you, wherever you are today, do you know that your Redeemer lives? Your Redeemer lives. Your Redeemer lives. The one who can make right everything that's wrong. The one that makes a way where there is no way. The one that restores the years that the locusts have eaten. That Redeemer will stand again on the earth. That's what Job says. Now, I could chase Job longer and further and deeper, but I want to skip over now to Joseph because I think Job is the example in the extreme. And I don't doubt that there could be a listener today who's had that kind of an extreme, who's had just wave after wave after wave of pain and loss, and you just feel like, I got nothing. I I don't know. I just feel like I am down and out, right? Job is a remarkable example of how he stood, how he endured through that. My example, however, my second example, however, is Joseph. Joseph, to me, is a remarkable character. There's no example. There's nothing listed in Scripture of anything Joseph did in way of sin. There's, we don't have any sin listed. We have, when he's recounting his dreams to his brother, I'm sure you could argue naivete or um, thoughtlessness, maybe. I don't think it was arrogance. I think it was, you know, I don't know about you, but very often around the table at our breakfast table when the kids were home, you know, did you have any dreams last night was not an uncommon question. And talking about the silliness of it and flying and maybe a monster or two, but I mean, that's not an uncommon question. And I don't know, I, I think it's more than plausible that It was kind of, did you have a dream last night? And little Joseph just tells his dream. And it was weird, right? But I don't know that Joseph meant anything by it. I don't know that he meant that his brothers were going to bow down to him. And he was like, nah, 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 nah. I don't don't see that. I, I mean, surely maybe you could argue that he was not very wise to share that story with brothers that, you know, weren't on Team Joseph that were a little bit aggravated by the favoritism he was shown by his father. But I don't think it was any malintent on his part, right? So you fast forward Joe's life, this animosity of his other brothers toward him just builds and builds and builds. The coat does not help anything. His brother sends him to check on his brothers. That didn't help anything, right? So the brother they don't even like and the coat they abhor is now checking on them. They did not like that at all, right? And you'll remember, Joseph just faces this series of things that, I don't know about you, it makes me scratch my head. I'm like, good grief, really? So he's his father's favorite. I guess that's on the positive side of the ledger, except I would argue that it's actually on the negative side of the ledger. It certainly didn't serve him very well. And so the brothers are incredibly jealous. And so he goes through this thing. He's, he's sold by them. He's sold by his brothers, right? He's sold by them. So he's taken away. I can't imagine the pain of, and betrayal of being sold by your brothers. And so then he's taken to Egypt and he's sold again to Potiphar. Now here you can say there was a little bit of a respite because of the integrity that Joseph had 
And I, and I say that specifically because he really ran Potiphar's household well, such that he became second in command of Potiphar's household. That's a thing. So he had enough self-respect and integrity and diligence to do what needed to be done in Potiphar's household. So he rises in Potiphar's household, but unfortunately, he also gets noticed by Potiphar's wife. And as a result, she tries to seduce him. And what does Joseph do? Joseph does what he characteristically does throughout the narrative of his life. He does the right thing and he runs. And there's a whole lesson there, right? There's no need when we're in a moment of temptation. There, It is not the better part of wisdom for us to hang around and think through our options. It's not the better part of wisdom to think, well, maybe we'll just stay a few minutes. Maybe we'll just have a small... No, no. When temptation presents itself, we ought to do exactly what Joseph did, and we ought to run. And so that's what he does, and yet she accuses him. And then what happens? So he was in the pit. He was sold. He's bought by Potiphar. He rises, and then now he's in prison. And you're just like, really? I mean, he's innocent. But at the same time, you see the hand of protection on God, right? Because I'm just saying, if Potiphar really thought that Joseph tried to seduce his wife, I think maybe his head would have rolled. I'm just wondering, that was Potiphar onto his wife, and he knew that it wasn't actually true, so he didn't kill him, but he had to do something, so he just puts him in prison. So now he's in prison, and yet his integrity serves him well again. Self-respect, his dignity. Again, he works hard. And he becomes second in charge in the prison. I mean, it's really remarkable, the up and the down, the up and the down, the up and the down, the up and the down. And I think this is more realistic and more broad-based for the rest of us. Very few of us have camels and oxen and sheep that are all going to be taken in one fail swoop, much less all of our children in one fail swoop. But... More often, our lives are like Joseph. There are ups and there are downs, and there are ups and there are downs. And even then, it's like, what are you talking about? How did I get here? And sometimes, just like Joseph, might I boldly suggest, we end up in prison and we didn't do anything. I'm not saying that we're innocent. We all have a sin nature. But I'm saying that Joseph didn't do anything to land in prison. He was there having been falsely accused, and yet he was there, and he couldn't do anything about it. Sometimes you and I find ourselves in circumstances and situations, and we don't know how we got here, and yet here we are. And what we see in Joseph at the end of his life when his brothers come, again, I would commend the story of Joseph in Exodus to you for further study. Picking up the story in Genesis 45, when he has tested the brothers, they've gone back and forth. He's trying to see, are they any different after all this time? Are they still, are they still the brothers that sold me? Have they grown at all? Have they changed at all? And so he puts them through some tests. And finally, in chapter 45, it says he couldn't control himself anymore, starting in verse 1. It says, skipping down, he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. But then he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? I'm Joseph. Is dad still alive? 
So he reveals who he is and wants to know if his dad's alive. Can you imagine the other brothers? This is, I mean, they went home and told dad, not we sold him into slavery and sent him off to Egypt. They went home and told dad that he'd been killed by a wild animal. And they held that story for years, for years. That was the story. And they witnessed the heartbreak of their father and no one broke rank. They held to that lie for years. Can you imagine when the very person that they need for food so their families don't all die turns out to be the very guy they sold? Yeah. Whoa. But pick up the story. Listen to what he says. Skipping down, he says to his brother, please, please, please come close to me. And they came closer, I'm guessing tentatively so. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me, for God sent me before you. Three times in this passage, if you read all of 45, three times he attributes his going before and being in Egypt and all that transpired, all that God did, all that God ordained, all that God sovereignly oversaw in Joseph's life. He summarizes it. Oh, no, 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 no. God did this. God did this so you could live. God did this. God sent me ahead of you in this. He knew it's like it's all coming together for Joseph. All of these things that have happened, Joseph Joseph is like, oh my goodness, I get it now. I had to be sold because you were going to be, there was going to be this famine and I had to come. And then I had to, this, it had to be this way. Y'all don't be mad at yourselves. Look what God did. Look what God did. If you skip over to chapter 50, this is the verse most often quoted, and this is after the father has died, right? And so now the brothers are thinking, okay, we, he said all that. He said that this was a good thing, that look what God did. We all moved to Egypt. He sent all these supplies, okay. But now dad's dead. So what happens now? Does that still all hold now that dad's dead? right? And Joseph assures them. Looking now at Genesis 50, 20, it says, as for you, you meant evil against me. So he doesn't deny what they did. They did mean evil. They were trying to get rid of him and profit simultaneously and deceive their father, right? So he calls it what it is. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Do not be afraid. Wow. So I want, we need to wrap this up today. I want to encourage you wherever you are. If you are in a situation where you find yourself off course with your resolutions, take some time. Realign. If you find yourself at the end of some natural, necessary endings, right? Make sure that you finish well. If you find yourself in a situation or a circumstance right now where you feel like you've been broadsided, where you feel like you've been hijacked, where nothing looks familiar, 
I want to give you a few things that you can do so that you can finish strong also. I want to dare you to hold on to who God is, to hold on to his sovereignty. He's over everything. Nothing surprises him. To hold on to his faithfulness. He will never leave or abandon you. He is with you in your mess. You are not alone in your mess. No matter how alone you feel, no matter how alone it looks, Job was not alone on that ash heap, scraping his boils. Neither was Joseph alone in that prison. And you, my dear friend, you are not alone. You're not alone. God is faithful. Hold on to his worthiness. Hold on to the fact that he is the king of the universe, high and lifted up. Hold on to who God is and hold on to his omnipotence. There is no circumstance or situation that you are in that his power is not over, that he cannot break through because that's who he is. And I want to dare you. I want to dare you in the midst of your mess, in the midst of wherever you are in any one of these instances, at the end of a natural thing, in the middle of your resolutions, in the middle of your implosion, I want to dare you, worship him. Dare to worship him. Get out your hymnal, turn on your praise tunes, and worship him. Dare to thank him. Because this circumstance was ordained by him, brought about by him for his glory and for your good. Number three, trust him. And you can tell him, look, I don't know where this is going and I don't even like it, but I trust that you're doing something with it. I trust you. And verbalizing it makes all the difference. And yes, with tears dripping off your chin, it still counts. Number four, obey him. Obey him. Continue on in what you know is right to do. Do the next thing. Doing the next thing, and I'm, I'm taking this from Elizabeth Elliott, and if you have not listened to her, I, I encourage you, pick up her podcast. It's amazing. And this is one of the things that runs through, I think, all of the talks she ever gave was the whole idea of the importance, the mandatory importance of trusting and obeying and doing the next right thing. That's, listener, Mom, that's how we finish strong. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have a question or comment, we invite you to send it to info at rachelcarmen.com. And while you're at Rachel's website, check out her wonderful resources, including the Word in Motion Bible Curriculum. We want to take a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the podcast. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. Moms, more than ever, we really do need each other. We need to be challenged, and we need accountability in the Word. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you in the next episode of The Real Refreshment Podcast. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air. They're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. 
Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more.